Hello, my name is Angela Cox and I am the Mindset Mentor and this is the Mindset Mentor Meets Podcast. Now, my aim is to discover and share the secrets of success. You'll hear engaging and uplifting interviews with business leaders at the top of their game, all primed to deliver bucketfuls of value and inspiration. We'll bring practical tips, success strategies, and golden nuggets of motivation to help you unleash your absolute potential. Now, please do like, share and leave a review if you love this podcast. It really does help others to find us. Thanks for listening and let's jump in now and meet this week's fabulous guest. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Now, I am joined today over Zoom by a lady that I'm getting to know quite well over the last few months and and probably last few years. It's the wonderful Kerry Headley. Now she is the Chief Operating Officer at Excel Vets and in her history working in veterinary practice, she has also worked as a veterinary surgeon, I understand. So she's kind of been there and done it and is now leading the people that do it. Now, She's in Northumberland. She tells me that it's snowing again today up there. So, Kerry, you're nice and warm in your study, it looks like. Tell me, how are you? Hi, Angela. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Uh, Yes, definitely nice and warm inside. Not so much outside. We've got snow again. I've had quite a lot this winter. So I've got very happy Labradors who've just done some Zoomies at lunchtime around the garden. Zoomies. Thank you. I love that term, Zoomies. (laughs) That's brilliant. And it's really lovely that we can finally get you on the podcast. It seems like forever ago that we decided we were going to do this. And here we are. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about you and letting other people get to know you a little bit more. Now, I know that you may have listened to the podcast before, so you know what's in store and that it's all about you as much as it's about your work and what you've learned over the years. But we do like to start off with you know, the shake your pom-poms moment where I ask you to celebrate your own successes and and really just recognize some of the wonderful things that you've done. So I'd love it if you share your three pom-pom moments with me. Yeah, happily. And yes, I have listened. So I was prepared for this one. So I've had a good think about it. The first one might sound completely bonkers for a vet to be saying, but absolutely having to be number one is keeping our three cats alive. There's a bit of a backstory that's probably helpful to know about. Yeah. We inherited three cats from my husband's mum, who sadly passed away after a short fight with cancer about six years ago. And unfortunately, that fight was a little bit shorter than we expected it was going to be as well. So very suddenly, we moved three cats into our home with our three-year-old chocolate Labrador, Rolo. And unfortunately, Rolo was pretty keen on trying to eat the cats. So it was a pretty no. time. He even had hold of one of them in his chops at one point. So no. um, it was a pretty stressful time. But obviously, these are my husband's mum's cats. So it was really, really important that we kept them alive. And so anyway, it was a pretty testing time to grab 
six months probably to integrate them all. All six of us were pretty stressed by it, but they now happily sleep on the sofa together and have also survived just getting a puppy about two and a half years ago. Buttons joined us and everyone's still going strong. So I think I'd actually say the cat's a boss now. So I think that's probably one of my proudest <laughs> moments is the fact that we have actually made that work. And the three cats are still alive and very much well and there's no problems. The real like territorial thing though with that, isn't it? You're coming into my house, yeah. your dog's saying there's no way I'm having all of these cats around. It's, it's incredible really from a behavioural perspective. And it's really instinctual as well. It was pretty yeah. unfair on all of them. They want to stay away from the dog and the dog just wants to chase them. So yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> proud that we've actually achieved that to be honest. And I guess probably wraps up with that would be that I'm actually pretty proud of the end of life care that we managed to achieve for, for Joe's mum during that time as well. So, um, but yeah, the cats, we celebrate the cats every year. <laughs> and were you a cat lover? I had cats when I was growing up. I would say I'm more of a dog person. I do love our cats and I love our dogs, but I'm probably slightly more of a dog person. <laughs> yeah, me yeah. too. I'm allergic to cats. So I do think that they're lush, but I can't go anywhere near them. So yeah. they wouldn't have been coming in my house. So you're a better <laughs> woman than I am, Kerry. <laughs> I hope they're not going to listen to this podcast. Maybe <laughs> say that I'm more of a dog person, bless them. <laughs> and what else have you got on your list? So I, I don't know if I've cheated because this is certainly not a, a proud moment. It's a, a good series of moments over lots and lots of years, but probably everything that I've achieved in my career to date. So graduating as a vet was a big one. When I worked clinically, the difference I could make to the horses and owners on a kind of day-to-day basis, getting my MBA, supporting my team now. And I think Probably one of the things that makes me proud is they're seeing what they can achieve and particularly mm. when you believe in them and just give them a bit of support to do that. That makes me really proud. So yeah, and then everything in between for the last 15 years, probably. It's an yeah. incredible career. And let's just dig into that for a bit before you share your third one, because I've got so many questions about what you do, because it's a million miles away from what I do every day. But the thing that I was was wondering about today is the courage that it must take to actually operate on an animal, especially one that's as big as a horse. I mean, where do you even start to learn how to do that? Yeah, really good question. And that operating on a horse is something I've not done for a long time now, to be honest, and would probably feel as possibly more petrifying now than when I very first did that when I graduated. So where do you start with that? I guess it's experience it's watching other people do it it's learning from people it's being prepared it's it's knowledge it's skills it's yeah and actually that with some of these things there's stuff outside your control so you can Mm. do your very very best but yeah courage is a really good word I think it is it is quite nerve-wracking doing that type of thing certainly for the first time and it gets better but things do go wrong with patients so yeah it is it is a brave thing to do. You're, yeah, absolutely right. Hugely brave. And then I was wondering about, you know, not only how do you learn to do that and how do you know, you know, what's wrong with all of these animals that are presenting to you? I mean, that, that it's the same as a GP, really. They're just a minefield. But then I think, okay, so Kerry's then made this transition into the role of COO, which is completely different to the specialism that you had. And so how have you made that transition? 
Yeah, good question. It's it's different, but in so many ways, it's the same. So as an equine vet, I always used to say, I didn't need to have everything in my head all of the time. I just needed to know how to find the answer. Nice. So my job was about problem solving. And ultimately, my day-to-day job now is about problem solving. And again, I don't need to have all of the knowledge in my head. I need to know where to find it and I need to know who to ask if I'm not sure. So there's quite a lot of similarities. You're right. One involves being out in all weathers, all times of the night, and another doesn't and is much more office-based or hotel-meeting-based. But there is quite big similarities between the skill set that I'm using, I guess. How do I go from being one to the other? So I can't ever remember not wanting to be that. I was probably about four when I said I wanted to be a vet. Religiously watched Animal Hospital, Vets in Practice. Quite cliche, really, I guess. (laughs) What small people say they want to do when they're older. But I'm a pretty determined person, so I never really changed my mind. No one at any point during my kind of schooling ever trying to change my mind either. So, yeah, that's what I worked towards, I guess. And I did my school work experience at our local vet practice, loved it, got a Saturday job on reception there. And I did that from age 14 to 18 until I went to vet school. I also worked on a farm that was attached to the Royal Vet College, which is where I ended up going. So I did that for a couple of years every Sunday before getting graduated as a vet. And so I did three and a half years in practice, and that was across two different practices. Both of them were part of a group called XL Vets, which is, as you know, where I now work. So XL Vets is a membership organisation of independent veterinary practices. And the kind of premise behind it is that by working together, you can achieve so much more. So it's a collaborative organisation. And throughout my time in practice, I'd had the opportunity to be involved in XL Vets, loved it. And I'd also, when in practice, even as a very kind of new, new graduate, was doing things like the Facebook page and the newsletter and how can we better process insurance forms and things like that. So I had an interest in the business side. And I kind of, I remember saying to one of the receptionists at one of the practices I worked at that, I think I'll probably do something businessy in the profession at some point, but probably about 10 years out. And I don't know why 10 years, there was no other plan than that. And then three and a half years into my clinical career, there was a maternity cover role that came up at Excel Vets, which was equine business manager. And I thought, oh, that sounds perfect. I could give it a go. Um, and so I did give it a go. And I've never left. That was six years ago. Oh, wow. And then I guess my role has kind of just changed with time and, yeah, probably sticking my nose into things. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I guess kind of like that's how I've ended up in the role that I am now is because I stuck my nose into finance and did some stuff there and then stuck my nose into HR. And then, yeah, so it's just kind of built over time and my role total kind of came with me at some point. (laughs) That's one of the things I love about you, your curiosity for everything that you can go and discover. And that's kind of the problem solver in you, I guess. definitely. So then you go on, you've mentioned as part of your second pom-pom that you, you know, you just chucked in that you've done an MBA, Mm. (laughs) which is huge. (laughs) So what led to that decision? Yeah, that was an interesting decision, actually. So I obviously did do quite a steep learning curve from equine vet. I've like summed it up in a couple of minutes there, but equine vet to chief operating officer is, is quite a career change. Yeah. And 
I'd done a postgraduate certificate in vet business management. Just brilliant, gave me great grounds in lots of general business skills. I was really conscious that since I was 14 years old, I'd spent my entire life in this veterinary bubble. And I just wanted to get some experience outside of the, I didn't want to leave my job. I love my job, but I want some experience out with the industry. So I just wasn't in that whole, just constant groupthink mode, if you like. Yes. And there was also something in there about, I've now got quite a high level job on paper, but I haven't really got anything to kind of back that up. So I think there was a credibility piece probably in there as well. Mm. And I really like learning as well. So really passionate about kind of developing myself and always wanting to learn more so I guess it gave me the opportunity to do all of those things so that's why I ended up doing that and it it was great I did it two years part-time so I got face-to-face contact obviously it wouldn't be these days but every month three days a month which was brilliant and there was you know people from a variety of different backgrounds and industries which was just yeah hugely valuable. That's amazing and it's inspiring and there's another bit to your work that intrigues me a lot and that is this essence of a collaborative organization because obviously you are made up of lots of independent vets so whilst on paper that sounds really great and really nice and you know everybody kind of come into this central pool for inspiration and going back I can imagine that is quite challenging sometimes as well because of the independent element of it so how do you in the center manage that because you're almost in a consulting role you know the way that I kind of look at it yeah just no, talk to me a little bit about that yeah you're right our practices tend to be really quite fiercely independent which yeah. often does go against collaboration so I'm not going to lie and say it's always easy and it happens smoothly and everyone just shares it that's not how it works <laughs> obviously on the ground but our role I think as a kind of a central office operations team to pull all of that together is try and get our members together supporting them to build up trust and relationships and typically at the heart of collaboration tends to be some sort of shared problem yes so covid has been a beautiful example mm-hmm. of that it's probably the only thing i can describe covid as beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah so if i take us back to last march when covid kind of hit and our practices were facing the first lockdown and they weren't able to do routine care and things like that at that point what could they do we very quickly had all of our members on Zoom in their different species groups and things like that. They were sharing ideas. So I remember one of them very early on, there was one of the guys in practice saying, well, what we're doing for people collecting medication is we've got a window in reception. So we're sending people to the window. And it was like a light bulb moment for other practices that could then do that. So it can be at quite a small level, really. But just that kind of weekly, we did that weekly. They're now a couple of weeks apart. Now we're a bit further out of COVID. But that shared problem... And yes, it's one of those things that you get out of it, what you put in. So if you turn up, show up and put some effort in, you get loads back. And I can testify to that when I was a member. Mm. I got an awful lot of satisfaction out of getting involved with it. But of course, yeah, because you've been on the other side, haven't you? So you've yeah. got that experience from knowing what it's like yeah. to be a customer of it, which is Absolutely. great. Yeah. And I'm guessing, I mean, I've just got a you know, lady's name in my mind, Ursula Henry, who's the ops director at the BSB, Banking Standards Board, which is a similar member organisation, but working with financial services. And I guess, you know, for you to actually be able to have connections with people perhaps in a different industry, but in the same yeah. or a similar boat might be quite nice. So Absolutely. I should yeah. hook you two together, which I will. Please do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, one of the objectives for 
all of our team for this first quarter is to speak to somebody interesting. So I think you've just ticked my box, Angela. So there you go. The universe was listening to you, Kerry. <laughs> So that collaborative environment can be challenging, but it's also full of kind of nuggets of best practice sharing and, you know, lots of gains if people are willing to get in there and share. And then I guess, you know, the transition from having animals as your key client, client, Mm -hmm. patient, I don't know what the term is. To having people, I mean, the skill set for those are entirely different at one level. So how have you managed that? Well, the first thing I would say is animals come with people. So they've all got owners. They've all got owners. So yes, we might be treating the patient, but the person we're communicating with is the owner. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't been kicked in the head in the last six years, which is definitely a bonus. But actually, that kind of communicating with people is exactly the same, I guess. The context might be slightly different, but I always think actually the thing that prepared me best for kind of that communication and, and working with people was working on reception. Oh my god! When I was fourteen, so I think that was probably the thing that set me up best for being set out into the world as a new graduate vet. It was actually hardest job. Yeah, hardest job in the world being a receptionist. Yeah, so I did. I did four years of that there, and I actually did a couple of years when I was at university. It's kind of an evening job at the the big small animal hospital there. So I had lots of experience, and in that you you get to deal with stressed people, you get mm. to deal with bereaved people, you get to deal you know, a whole mix, a range of emotions in people. So yeah, you get the opportunity very early on to practice. Those kind of challenging conversations, which, yeah, sets me up well for what I do on a daily basis, to be honest. Absolutely. In fact, now that you're saying, I reckon an apprenticeship in a reception environment for most people would be brilliant as a start to the career. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, a Saturday job on reception somewhere. Yes. Yeah. And one more thing about the vets before we move on to number three, because the thing that's kind of everywhere you look at the moment is this rise in puppies Mm. like everyone seems to have got a puppy during lockdown and I know when we talked last you were saying that that's actually been one of the things that's led to a great year for XL vets which is wonderful during this COVID world but how has that come about do you think what's that all that about Mm. everybody wanting a puppy supply and demand I know I know personally a lot of people that have never had a dog because they've said we can't it's not fair we work all day yeah. And actually, a lot of those people are now plunged into this situation where, you know, them or their partner are now working from home. And all of a sudden, that barrier to getting a dog is not there anymore. So perfect time to get a dog. And we'll think about what happens after COVID later. So I think that's been probably a big rise in the kind of people wanting to get dogs. Yes. And then I think there has been a bit of a shortage of puppies at points over the last year because everyone wanted a dog. I'm very aware of the supply and demand pricing model that seems to be going on with yes. it at the moment. And you'll pay a lot more for a puppy now than you might have done 18 months ago. And yeah, I don't know what impact that has on the quality of breeding and things and how many extra litters people might be having mm. they might not have done otherwise. But yeah, I think why are people getting dogs is, well, because dogs are brilliant for starters. And then I think it's just that that barrier has been removed. And that welfare thing is a little bit of a concern, isn't it? In terms of 
what might be over the next sort of 12, 18 months as we start to return to normal, hopefully. We'll have to see what yeah. happens there. Yeah. And how much have people considered it if, you know, if they weren't getting a job before, if they thought about all of the financial implications, insurance and what does it mean when they go back to work? Can they afford a dog walker? Yes. I spend, when I'm in the office or away from meetings, I spend 30 odd quid a day on a dog walker. So yeah. can they afford that and everything else that goes with it? So yeah, time will tell. Yes. Grooming costs. I've got a Bichon Freeze. He costs us a fortune in grooming. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a big fluffy pom-pom. We didn't think that yeah. one through, Kerry, I tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> Short-haired dogs all the way next yeah, time. <laughs> Now, share with me your third pom-pom. What's that one all about? Yeah, so my third pom-pom actually links back to the MBA. So it's going to be my research work that I've done on women in leadership within the back profession. Oh, yeah, let's go into this. I started that research work with my MBA dissertation project, and I've continued it with some follow-up last year, which is still to be written up and analysed. But I think, so the, the project I did as part of my MBA was what are the barriers and enablers to female vets within the profession becoming business owners? So because it was for a master's project, it did have quite a tight title. So it was leadership in that context was specifically business ownership. And it was fascinating. I did, I think it was about eight focus groups. There was about 25 women that took part. It was just brilliant. But what I think makes me most proud about it is not that I've done it. It's that the change it's then elicited and the difference it is making. So one of the actions that came from it was it'd be really helpful to have a network of women trying to develop their leadership skills. And we did our first women in leadership event in September last year, virtually for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, and we collaborated with a brilliant organization called Veterinary Woman that shares similar kind of goals around this to us. And we had over 120 people attended. It was a brilliant day, like fabulous feedback. It couldn't have gone better from my oh. perspective. But one of the big themes that ran all the way through the research was if you can see it, you can be it. Oh. And the earlier you see it, the better. So we included students. We did kind of a, a discounted rate for students because, again, that earlier you see it, the better. Yes. Uh, make sure they feel included. So we did that. And we did some role model sessions as part of it where we had a number of inspiring ladies that talked about their career story and just spoke kind of 15, 20 minutes and then took questions. And I literally could have listened to it all day. And I know that since we've done that initial research work and that event, that some of those have actually already gone on to be business owners. In oh, wow. And some have become directors. So I'm not saying that's completely down to the research at all, but I... It's yeah, a catalyst it was, for it. Yeah, and they might have been um and ahhing, and but actually having been in that room and that well virtual mm. room they were done on Zoom, so Zoom room with other women that had done it, as someone who wasn't a business owner and thinking, oh, do I want to do this? What does it entail? Actually, that again, seeing it has has helped them then push so, on. Like lit the fire. Yeah, so that makes me really proud. And there was also, <laughs> I remember ringing a couple of people and saying, would you? please be interested in doing this role model story. And they're like, oh, God, no, I can't possibly. No, definitely not. No one's going to want to listen to me. And Everybody <laughs> says that. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I just, I can't do it. But oof, if you kind of, if you, if you think it would be helpful, I'll <laughs> help you out. And actually seeing them do it and 
just been so inspiring. It was just, yes. yeah, really, really fabulous. That made me really proud that giving them a nudge to do it, hopefully, yes. is a real boost as well. I can yeah. really relate to that because it's the same with this podcast. People say all the time, oh, there's no point in me coming on because people aren't going to want to listen to me. And then the feedback that they get from peers and long lost friends and colleagues is just lush afterwards. So I can yeah, completely relate true. to that feeling. And tell me about some of the barriers that you found then through the research. What were these barriers that women faced? Yeah, it was a real mix, actually. So there was three key themes in terms of where the barriers and enablers were structured. So there was in your kind of home life. So individual factors that could be where you lived, there might not be an independent practice near you yep. that you could actually buy into, but you might be tied to an area for caring needs or your partner's job or whatever reason. So there could be some real logistical issues. It could be that you have got several children and you can't see how it'd be possible. It could be that financially you would struggle to buy in. And that's a real, there's a real interesting piece in here because those who have bought in recently said they thought that would be a barrier, but when they went to do it, it actually wasn't at all. So a lot of this was just about perception. It was perceived. Yeah. There was then systems and structures in practice. There was barriers and enablers around. So, for example, people saw their bosses maybe doing very long days or being there really late at night and thought, I don't want that. So what they were seeing wasn't what they then wanted to aspire to. But actually, when you speak to the business owners, they were like, oh, I might have been there at eight o'clock at night, but they didn't see me dipping out to a school play halfway through the uh, day. And it affords me that flexibility. So it works. So again, that, that real difference. And that's where it was so valuable having those. I did some that were mixed groups and some were just non-owners and some were just owners. And those mixed groups, I think, got the most benefit because they saw it from both sides. Yeah. And then the final area was human resource development. So that came out of business training, lack of business training. Vets don't get a lot at university. And even if they do, they're interested at that stage in the clinical stuff. It doesn't go in. And I can remember yes. that myself, despite now doing a business job. So business training, you know, all of these skills are completely trainable. So that's one thing. But also seeing a career pathway to become an owner. Actually, that was something that wasn't very transparent to people. So okay. that was important. You know, how much does it cost to buy in? People have got no concept of that. And it's it's almost still a little bit archaic in that it's secretly discussed. No one really knows. Yes. Um, so being more transparent and open helps that. And then the big thing in that kind of human resource was role models, which is why we've done quite a lot of work around that role modeling. If you can see it, you can be it. Yeah. So that kind of belief bit and the belief that it is possible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Women in particular seem to harbor so much doubt about the art of the possible and it'd be interesting to hear from you if you know this yet the split between men and women in terms of percentage men percentage women in veterinary practice at the moment have you got a view of that yeah so it's it's a highly feminized profession and increasingly so so off the top of my head the figures are probably something about 85 percent female vet students coming through now but wow. actually, I don't have completely up-to-date figures off the top of my head for numbers in leadership roles, but it's certainly nothing like that. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. So I know within our wow. business, this is the figures from two years ago when I first did this piece of work. So it was one-fifth, so 20% of the business owners within Excel Vet practices were women and 80% male. So 
it's been feminized for years as well it's increasingly so but there's not been that kind of increasing representation at that same rate. At the business owner level <laughs> funny is that so you're making a real difference there then with this work it's brilliant yeah. And the the follow-up study that I did in 2020 that I still need to write up, it broadened it out to women in leadership roles specifically rather than business ownership. So to be honest, a lot of similar stuff came up anecdotally from it. I I do need to formally analyse it, but yeah, it was still quite similar. But yeah, it's a really, really important piece of work because there's good evidence that shows in the medical profession that having clinicians in leadership roles and having really strong leadership actually improves patient outcomes. It's yeah, amazing. I don't really believe it would be any different in veterinary that having vets and clinicians as leaders is a positive thing for patient outcomes. It's just so fascinating and a massive piece of work. So when you're saying that you've got to write something else up, is this part of another qualification that you're doing or is it the same No, one? it's not another qualification. It's just a piece of research that I've done. It's actually with a lady called Janie, who's my MBA supervisor. So we're doing it together and we were lucky to get some funding actually to be able to run it, which is great. So yes, I know it's it's not another qualification. I just need to find some time. (laughs) To to get it done. (laughs) Quite a lot of time to get it done. Yeah, so I think I'm going to almost do a bit of a sabbatical to to write that up (laughs) time. Um, So I have to say it was much easier to get it written up when I had a kind of a looming dissertation deadline. Yes. <laughs> it's challenging to find those hours, I have to say. And let's just think about lessons learned along the way, because it's yeah. always a good question in terms of reflecting on some of the hard times really and, and how you've managed those and come through and what you've learned. Yeah. So lessons I've learned along the way loads probably and so as I've said I'm really interested in learning and development and developing myself as part of that I think the last six years which would be kind of when I've done the transition to a non-clinical role the first bit was about the hard business skills I think mostly and then the second bit has been more about the soft business skills so leadership and kind of self-awareness developing myself how do I want to be as a leader so I think there's two models that I've really, really enjoyed kind of working with that have resonated with me. And that would be Brené Brown's work, which, oh, God, you know, yeah. as you know, I'm a bit of a super fan, as you are. <laughs> and so I absolutely love that work that she's done. And I think actually reading, I would go as far as to say that reading her books and kind of putting some of that into practice has been completely life-changing. Mm. And the other one that I absolutely love that really resonates with me is the Chimp Paradox model. Yeah. So I think what have I learned along the way when things have been difficult? Typically, it's things that I might be frustrated about or conversations that haven't gone as well as I've wanted or outcomes that just haven't been quite what I wanted. And I think learning that I I can change my thoughts. My thoughts aren't me and yes. design a situation. So actually using those models to think about that. So that's all completely self-development work that I've done an awful lot of and I think probably the biggest thing for me there has been Brené Brown's piece of extending the most generous explanation generosity that has been really really important not just to others but for myself as well 
And that's been a really big thing. And I think in terms of kind of working on those things, I haven't just read the books and gone, yeah, that's brilliant. I really do put quite a lot of effort into it. Every weekend and you know, during the week, every single week, I will do something on this. That's and amazing. I, you know, I will, from a chimp model perspective, if I've been hijacked by my chimp, I'll write it down, I'll reflect on it, I'll think about it. And it's only by doing that that I think you kind of learn. And then actually, I think some of those difficult encounters happen less frequently because you're getting better at managing it and you'll know more about yourself, more about others that you're working with. So yeah, practice and, and just being constantly curious about learning more and developing yourself, I think. It's so important that message now because so often what happens, I describe it as like someone going and having a facial. So that would be the same as reading a book like The Chimp Paradox. And then you have the facial as a one-off and your skin looks great and it's brilliant and you get the advantages from that moment. But then if you don't actually put any skin cream on between now and the next facial in six months time, it's all going to go to pot. And yeah. it's the same as what you're saying. You've got to actually put the work in after you've read the book or in between a, a session with a coach or whatever. Because if you don't, then you just keep reverting back to your old patterns. Yeah. And it's very seldom that I hear someone actually say, I put the work in and I sit there at the weekend and I sit there in the evenings and reflect yeah. on what yeah. I've done and where I am. So yeah. it's a really important message that you share there. Yeah, I literally do schedule development time into my week, into my own time. And you, know, you get a lot of this opportunity during the working day as well. But I think that real hard personal development work, yes. you really need to schedule in. <laughs> No, completely yeah. agree. Completely agree. That prioritize you mentality and keep yeah. developing, keep pushing. Oh, fabulous lesson learned. And Brené is a goddess. Yeah. She absolutely <laughs> is. <laughs> We're going to play a game, Kerry. Let's uh-huh. play a game. So we're going to play the five second game rule. Yeah. And you know my daughter Coral a little bit. So this is Coral's favorite game. And so you're going to give me three answers within five seconds to a killer question. Cool. So let's do, in the five second game rule, can you give me three things that you're going to do when lockdown finishes? Ooh, what am I going to do when lockdown finishes? I would like to go and meet my niece, who was born a few weeks ago that I haven't seen yet. So I would like to do that. I would like to, yeah, also see my parents, see people basically, see my parents. Seeing my friends that I haven't seen yet in over a year as well. And actually probably go out for a really nice dinner as well. We've been yes. in kind of advanced restrictions up here in Northumberland since kind of September. Forever. So, yeah, a really long time. So quite looking forward to going out for dinner as well. Yeah, I'm with you there. I'd be kind of having the roots done would be, have to be number one. <laughs> <laughs> the joys of being blonde, Kerry. And then it's going to be seeing my parents the same. I've not seen them since February last year. And probably going, yeah, for a nice dinner or an overnight in a hotel without the kids. That would be my three. And so we're on to the big question. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to hear what you're going to say about this. So the, the big question is that everybody wants to know, in your view, what do you think the secret to success is? You've probably picked it up from me as we've gone, but 
Hard work. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> Hard work, keep learning. And I think being really deliberate and conscious about what you're wanting to do and give something your full attention as well. Really work on it. So I might listen to an audio book, but you need to go back and sit down and quietly do the exercises and things that come up from it. So give something your full attention, really focus on it and yeah, practice. Just keep learning as well. Just really seek to keep developing yourself I think yeah that curiosity and and I mean you've just said something there that is really easy to say and incredibly difficult to do put your full attention on things so what's your big tip around actually making that happen yeah so I I have a bit of a plan that I do and I do it quarterly and this is about some stuff that I've learned from you Angela actually so I do that quarterly because that works better for me and I have kind of a couple of key areas that I'll focus on for that quarter and I'll set some goals around it and I just I check in with that really regularly so I've got a well-being journal that I jot that down in and what I'm going to do today and that's also my opportunity for a reflection so I just fill that in I look at that in the morning I put my intentions down for the day and I fill it in at night kind of what's gone well what hasn't gone well and then I do a bigger version of that at the end of the week and then do this in the and I think by doing that, it's constantly in my mind because otherwise you think, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Something happens and you forget. So I'm just trying to keep it constantly on my agenda. And it's funny because it's constantly in your mind, but it's constantly out of it as well. Because one of the challenges with people who ruminate a lot is they hold it all in their heads. But actually that putting the intentions down, knowing what you want to achieve by when, thinking about what's coming up, what you've already achieved that almost helps you get it out of your head as much as it keeps it front and center and keeps the focus there. So there's kind of like a a win-win both sides. Definitely. And I like taking my to-do list off. That's a real biggie for me. Mm. (laughs) If I put it on there and I've written it down and I don't do it, that causes me great stress. um, (laughs) If I put it down, I'm very likely to do it, um, which helps. And then when it's ticked off, a little shake your pom-poms moment. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. Love it. So a woman of many, many talents, you know, you're showing your ability to shift from one area that is really specialized into an area that, you know, is about leading people, collaboration, managing relationships, driving a business forward. And then in amongst all of that, the learning and the research that you've done to help other people as well, massive inspiration. I think, well, you are the first person that we've had from veterinary practice on the podcast so it's been a lovely to kind of hear more about you and what you do and and thank you for sharing with us so openly thank you for inviting me it's been a joy i do hope that you enjoyed listening to the mindset mentor meets podcast if you did be sure to check out the show notes to access all of those important links For more about me, visit my website at www.angela-cox.co.uk. Now, I'd really love it if you could subscribe to our channel so that you never miss an episode. And do leave us a five-star review because it really helps us to get noticed. Bye for now. I do hope that you'll tune in next week and take good care.